If you could find Hebrews in your Bible, it's probably one of the most difficult books in the New Testament to interpret and understand, and yet it is so rich. So what I, all I can promise you this morning is that I hope to simply whet your appetite to want to study the book of Hebrews with me over the next several months. He was born contrary to the laws of nature, lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born, and that was in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence and had neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled learned doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all of the libraries of the world could not hold the books about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters together. He never founded a college, and yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has. He never practiced medicine, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors who heal broken bodies. This Jesus Christ is the star of astronomy. He is the rock of geology. He is the lion and the lamb of zoology. He is the harmonizer of all discords and the healer of all diseases. Throughout history, men have come and gone, and yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. Chapter 2 of John MacArthur's commentary on Hebrews. As 2020 opened, we began a shared journey through the Bible. We called it Route 66, where every sign points to Jesus. From Genesis forward, we sought to highlight the people, the promises, the portraits, and the principles that anticipated the coming of the promised Messiah, Savior. Even during the interruptions and adjustments of COVID-19 challenges, we faithfully pressed forward together, and your patient and participation was a huge encouragement to us all. And then this past January, we briefly looked at the gospel records concerning this Christ we had been seeking in our Old Testament journey. It was a study we called simply Jesus. In a rapid survey of the four gospel accounts, we took some time to mark many of his works and his words. That study then led us into the Sermon on the Mount, which we entitled, Follow Me. The focal point of all was the recognition of the high cost of discipleship. Beginning in June of this year, we looked at what we are to be in this season as we live between the two appearings of Jesus, and we considered the letters to the seven churches of Revelation 1-3. to Our series was called Dear Church. Now today, we open up the book of Hebrews. In 13 chapters and 303 verses, the whole story of redemption comes together with its key theme being the superior greatness of Christ Jesus to all that has come before. He will be declared to be God's final word. In some ways, it's an epistle, a letter to the saints. But more realistically, 
it is a sermon. It is a word of encouragement with woven in warnings to people who have lost the initial joy and confidence of their salvation. And in their discouragement, they are seeking an exit ramp from the faith. So we have entitled our study in Hebrews, Is He Enough? You have your Bible open to Hebrews. We're just going to read the first four verses. By the time we're done this morning, you'll be frustrated because there'll still be 301 verses we haven't touched on. Long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What we have discovered is that the entire Bible is one developing story. It is the narrative of God's redemptive plan and purpose, with the central theme being one person, that is, the person of Jesus Christ, declared to be the Son of God. It is a single coherent story that leads to a cliffhanger. There has to be a resolution. And the resolution to the redemptive narrative that we've been studying through the Scripture is the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who is none other than the eternal Son of God. Now, I borrowed this from Alistair Begg, but he didn't give it the John MacArthur structure that I imposed upon it. Christ is the central theme of all of the Scriptures. You'll want to write this in a notebook. You may want to get yourself a journal or something to follow along as we make our way through Hebrews. I'm hoping that the, the framework that we put on it this morning uh, will guide my preaching of it as I and others unpack it in the weeks ahead. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. It is declared that He is going to come. When we came to the Gospels, we see that Jesus is revealed. He is the revelation of God. In the book of Acts, the emphasis on Christ is on the proclamation of he, his life and his ministry. In the epistles, we have the explanation of what all of that means and who he is. And then in Revelation, we have the anticipation, the expectation that he will soon return. His prediction, his revelation, his proclamation, his explanation, and his anticipation. That brings us then to the book of Hebrews, which in amazing ways takes all of the stories, the narratives of redemption, and wraps it up into a meaningful message to a particular, particular group of people. The question in Hebrews is, who is its author? Most every other book of the Bible, we know who the human agent is by which it was written. There are many suggestions as to who it is. I was 
trying to think back, it's been a long time since I was in Bible college, but what one of our semester projects in Hebrews was by the end, excuse me, by the end we, we had to write a proposal as to who we thought the author was, and we had to defend it from the text. And I think at the time I concluded that it was the Apostle Paul, and I think I got a B on that paper, I'm not sure. So apparently the prof thought it was somebody else. Origen says it best of all, he said, only God knows. Only God knows. Now, on Sunday afternoons, to meet with some 20-somethings, and we're working through Hebrews, and the question they had last week is, so, so why, why didn't he tell us who the author is? And of course, you know, this many years later, you can speculate all you want. I have a sense that the reason we don't know the author is because we are to focus on the subject. And that if we knew the author and we knew the time and the destination, that we would be more distracted by the background than we would be by the message itself. But we know from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that the author is the Spirit of God. For there he says that all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is God breathed. All Scripture is the breath of God. Or as my friend Vern Steiner says, and his breath is always fresh. All Scripture is breathed by God and is profitable for doctrine, what we believe, for reproof, to shape us up and remind us when we're off track. For doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, to train us in righteousness so that we, the men and women of God, might be adequate and equipped for every good work. This is, this in front of us is the Word of God. Now, a little spiritual bunny trail. Somebody actually put an offering check in the slot one time and wrote on the, on the subject line, this is not for Tom's bunny trail. So anyway, as I say, don't, you, don't, you don't have to put a quarter in it for that. Today, I, I would say the, the, the one concern in evangelicalism, and uh, my brother Neil and I were on the phone the other night for, for an extended period of time, and uh, said that one concern is, is that in evangelicalism, we affirm the inspiration of the authors of the Scripture, that men of God moved by the Spirit of God wrote. But we... We have this tension going on in evangelicalism today. Be alert to it. The question is, is, is it the author that's inspired, or is it the words that they wrote that are inspired? And we at Faith Bible Church hold that every word in the text is the Word of God. It is inspired. It is the breath of God. And you say, who cares? I care for this reason. A lot of what is written in the scriptures runs countercultural to our day and age. And some of our brothers and sisters are flirting with or actually have stepped over and accommodated practices and behaviors that are unbiblical. But they have defended it from the perspective that you need to understand the authors wrote in a time-space culture. But the times have changed, and therefore what they said no longer applies to where we are. 
If that's the case, then there's, there's, there's no assurance even on the passages that deal with my salvation, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. I mean, how, how can I know, if I can't trust all of it, how can I trust any of it? So I, I laughed. The man that molded and shaped my, my life and heart for teaching the scriptures as well as parenting my household and loving my wife as much or almost more than my own father was Dr. Boyd. And, and Dr. Boyd was a fresh graduate of Dallas Seminary who was a, a pastor of Christian education at a church in Yakima, Washington. And uh, he had preached on, second, on 1 Timothy chapter 2 uh, that Sunday. And a lady from the church came in to see him in his office that, and she said, Dr. Boyd, I want you to know that I disagree with your interpretation of 1 Timothy 2. You need to understand that the Apostle Paul was living in a time when, when women were despised and they were uneducated and they were not. We don't live in those times anymore. So the way you handled 1 Timothy chapter 2, I don't agree with that. And being a young, like 27-year-old seminary grad, Dr. Boyd just took that page and ripped it out of his Bible, wadded up and threw it in the trash can and said, what else do you not agree with? And he said her eyes got about that big. And uh, when she left, he looked at the trash can and realized what he had done. And, and so he took it out and he took it home and he ironed the page and he taped it back in his Bible. And I know that because I saw that. Yeah, that was the Bible he taught us from. If, if every word is not the Word of God, then instead of a yellow highlighter as you're studying the Scripture, use a black Sharpie and just mark it out. Whatever you don't agree with, just highlight it out. This is the Word of God. Every word of it. Our job is to figure out why He said it, the way He said it, when He said it here, and what to do with it, not to question whether it's authoritative or not. That's probably worth 50 cents in the offering slot right there. The date of writing, we, we don't know because we don't know who the author is. We don't know exactly when, but we know this. It was subsequent to the ascension of Jesus as we're working through these 13 chapters. We will find out that these, these Hebrews have been believers, followers of Jesus long enough that they should have been mature, and they're not, chapter 5 and chapter 6. And in chapter 10, that they have paid an incredible price for their faith, and they have, many of them lost everything, and many of them are suffering as a result of that. So we know that it at least is enough years after the ascension of Jesus that they have been able to experience the rush and joy of sins forgiven and discover that the law has dead and that it comes alive in Jesus and that we have been given new life and freedom and probably sometime before 70 AD, because he talks about increasing persecution, and he says, and, but you have not yet been persecuted to the point of shedding blood. So it's, it's before Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and all. He talks about the ongoing acts of being drawn back to the rituals and routines of temple worship. So we so somewhere between 35 and 69 A.D., we'll call it that. Harry Ironside, the historic pastor of Moody Memorial Church, said it this way. He said, Hebrews is the interpretation and the application of the book of Leviticus. 
You recognize that, Leviticus? That's the one where when you're committed to reading through the Bible in a year, you get about three verses into Leviticus and say, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's like, what's going on? You want to understand Leviticus? You read the book of Hebrews. Who are the first readers? Again, it, it, we don't know. He doesn't, Paul would write to, to the elders and the deacons at Philippi, I write, or whatever. This, this author doesn't tell us. What we do know is that they were Hebrews, which was the name that was given, the, the, the tag that was put on Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. It is the Jewish people. So the first readers are Jews. As you're reading this book of Hebrews, there, there is no reference there at all to Gentiles. Not, just not given. Also, it is so rich in Old Testament uh, allusion as well as direct quotation. I, I just put some stats on there as I was leaving the house at 6.30 this morning. Said, Linda said, you know, most people are not interested in all the details that you find intriguing. So I, I understand that you're just like, now you're just totally zoned. But uh, I find this really fascinating. There are at least 38 direct Old Testament quotations in the book of Hebrews. 303 verses, 13 chapters, and 38 Old Testament quotations. There are 27 Old Testament passages quoted in those 38 quotations, and there are 55 other Old Testament allusions in it. He's writing to Hebrews, to Jews who know the Scriptures. They know the Old Testament, but the price of following Christ is so high, the pressure is so intense, that they are considering an exit ramp. And to assure them that the decision they made to give their hearts and lives to Jesus was not a bad decision, he uses the scriptures with which they are familiar, what they grew up with, what they, they learned in Hebrew, Awanas, and he, he supports their faith and the legitimacy of their faith by quoting their Bible. Now, John MacArthur said there are three target audiences and among the first readers. And it, if we lose track of this, then we get into tough passages. And there are some tough passages. John, or, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. And we've got brothers and sisters who, who flounder when they come to those and they, and they hit the panic button and fear sets in because, whoa, I thought that my life was eternal. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but would have everlasting life. But I'm reading in Hebrews 6 and it sounds like maybe that's speculative. Well, if you forget who some of the audience is, you quickly. So we'll try to keep it clear as we go. It was first of all written to true Hebrew believers. They're the primary reading audience. They have embraced Jesus as the Messiah of fulfillment to the prophecies of the Old Testament. They have taken Christ as their personal Savior. But they are feeling the strain of persecution and affliction. Because you see, in the Roman Empire, the Hebrews were given freedom to practice Judaism. They were given the freedom of their worship and their rituals and all under, under government protection. 
but Christianity was not. It was considered to be a cultic outbreak from the Hebrews, and so the Christians in this era were under incredible stress and persecution, as we discover when we'll get to the 10th chapter in several months, just be honest. You know, today, we're worshiping here, and most of you got up this morning, and probably most of you decided last night whether you were going to join the fellowship, the gathering, or not. But let's be honest, after, after a COVID year, this, what we're doing this morning has really kind of become one of several weekend options for those who name the name of Jesus. We, we could go to church, or, you know, we could just we could have pancakes, pajamas, and Pastor Tom and just stay home and watch him on the, on the tube, you know. We, we, we could just listen to him later in the week when we have time. It's just not. Around the world today, it's not like that. Not like that. I, it, it blew me away. It's been a lot of years ago since I got to preach in the capital of Haiti, but uh, that morning when, when we gathered, there were like 350 Haitians in the Evangelical Free Church there. And I preached with an interpreter, which is, I don't do that well at all. And my sermon was about 45 minutes in length. And then they sang a hymn, and then the pastor leaned over and he said, this will give you time for your second sermon. I was like, what? And he said, some of these people left home three hours before the service to be here. That's how important it is. They, they, it, it just, it, the being with the brothers and sisters for the encouragement. In the last 10 years, in Nigeria alone, over 50,000, some estimates are 70,000 brothers and sisters in Jesus have lost their lives because they worshiped this Jesus. You know, the the biggest threat to my Christian faith is that it it might box in my lifestyle a little bit. I might might have to give up some pleasures or something because it doesn't represent Jesus well. When I came to faith in the Lord Jesus, it delighted my family. It didn't segregate me from my family. This was costing them everything. Some were beginning to doubt the sufficiency of Christ. I thought that life in Him was life indeed. But if this is the life, the price is too high. Many were wanting an easy way out. Some were simply flirting with ritualistic, ceremonial, legalistic Christianity. If we we can take some of our our Hebrew-Jewish worship background and integrate it into our Christian fellowship, Perhaps we will not be seen as, as outliers. And maybe we can, we can just by becoming a bit more ritualistic and a little bit more liturgical, a little, just a little bit more legalistic, perhaps we won't stand out so much in the persecution. They desperately needed reassurance that the faith they had in Jesus was a faith well planted. Having had eight weeks to just kind of sit back and one just just to take the word in from others that are preaching it well but also to worship with you from back there rather than from up here and, and to be able to see you as the flock of god there's probably many among us who are right at that tipping point 
going, you know, I, I don't know. I just don't know if I want to go on with this. I don't know if what happened to the joy of my salvation. It's, it's, it, this has just been a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. To those who are ready to give up, to cash it in, they're finding it hard and costly. Hebrews' encouragement not to quit. Chuck Swindoll said, Hebrews is a letter to first century homeless people. Street people who have lost their homes, lost their possessions, lost their friends, lost their loved ones, and many may even lose their own lives because of Jesus. All were facing intense persecution. They needed a word of hope. That's the primary audience for Hebrews. There's a second audience, and that is Hebrew non-believers who intellectually understand that Jesus could be the Messiah of the Old Testament, but they are only intellectually convinced they have not yet committed their hearts and their lives to Him as the Savior. They, they, they can connect the dots, they, they, they see the Old Testament descriptions and promises and pictures, and, and they amen that, but the price of a commitment to Him is just too high. And so for that reason, they are just given intellectual assent, but they're not given their heart and their life. It's possible that in our fellowship, there are some of us like that. I preached Friday night to 70 middle schoolers over at Sower Church. I, I told them briefly my own story of being a third generation minister, a PK. And I won the Bible quizzes, and we used to do it, it was called sword drill. Sword drills aren't near as much fun when you turn on your Bible rather than in your Bible. But scripture memory and all, I had a stack of Bibles I'd been awarded. I, intellectually, I believed everything, but it wasn't until I was 21 doing a homework assignment of the Gospel of John that I was born again. Some of, some of you are like that. that that's... We, we have the most robust children's ministry and youth. I mean, it's, we put it up against whatever, but the danger is, is that the, the traffic of the truth has run over their hearts and minds so many times that it's just creating layers of callous. And so they intellectually assent to it, but submitting, bowing the knee of their heart. The author here will indicate that the greatest sin that man could commit is the sin of rejecting Christ Jesus. Hebrews 10, 26. If we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Those who intellectually agree that the gospel is accurate but do not commit their hearts and life they are facing eternal judgment in the consuming fire. And then there's a third. The third audience are simply Hebrew non-believers who are not yet convinced. And so as we're working through, you'll see that the author writes to them, placing arguments, he does apologetics, trying to convince them that this is in fact the best commitment they can ever make. The book of Hebrews answers the question John the Baptist raised in Matthew 11. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look 
for another? Is he the one? Is he enough? Now the theme. Thirteen times you will mark, and I'm a lover of electronics and all that and digital, but there's just nothing like a piece of paper you can just write all over. I would suggest that you, you just take a Bible that you're not afraid to write in and you just get ready with your pens to mark it up big time. If we do Hebrews rightly, when we're done, I will not be able to read my text again because of the notes on it. Thirteen times you're going to read the phrase, better than. That is the theme of Hebrews. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than angel. He offers us a better covenant, a better sanctuary, and a better sacrifice. We'll unpack each of those as we go, as they show up in the text. It is also an exhortational sermon. He says in Hebrews 13.22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. My dad said anybody that can write 303 verses in 13 chapters and call that brief is something else. Thirteen times you're going to see the phrase, let us. Let us. Which is supposed to do something. I eavesdropped on the small group gathering back in the ark uh, before church this morning and to hear Brother Gordon talk about it, how much easier it is to study the Scriptures than it is to actually apply the Scriptures. And many people stop short and they know a lot about it, but it doesn't transform them. Whoever the author is, he is writing in order that lives would be changed. Or as Ron and I always said when we were doing Bible studies, it's never done until you ask the so what question. So what? That's what Hebrews does. It is heavy theology, but it is very, very practical. In it, there are five sober warnings and perhaps a sixth. There's a warning against drifting, chapter 2, verse 1. There's a warning against the dangers of disbelieving, chapter 3, verse 7. There's a warning against defecting, chapter 5, verse 11. There's a warning against disparaging this truth, making little of it or light of it, chapter 10, verse 26. And there's a warning against declining this one message of hope, chapter 12, verse 18. And now finally, let's look at two of the 303 verses before the clock eats our lunch. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world long ago. What the author does is that he takes everything that has been recorded from Genesis chapter 1 forward, and he says, those are the words of God. We have a God who speaks, a God who communicates. You're going to hear this over and over in Hebrews. We only know about God and the things we know about God, we only know because God of His own initiative saw fit to reveal them to us. 
They are not discoverable in any other human fleshly manner. Long ago, God begins. Genesis chapter 1. And God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. And it says, and he spoke many times. Repeatedly, down through those hundreds of years of history, God stepped into humanity. Now, lest we miss this along the way, I just want to say, everything in the Old Testament is true. Everything in the Old Testament is the Word of God. It's just that it's not complete. It's not that it's not inspired. It's just that it's a progressive revelation. The human mind and heart could not absorb everything that God desired to reveal about Himself and His ways and His purposes at one time. So year by year, generation by generation, He reveals more and more. So to Adam, He revealed that Messiah would come from the woman's seed. To Abraham, He revealed that the Messiah would be His descendant. To Jacob, He revealed that Messiah would come from Judah's house. To David, he revealed that Messiah would one day sit upon David's throne. To Micah, he revealed that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. To Isaiah, he revealed that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. The many ways as you're reading through the Old Testament. He sometimes uses narrative stories. Other times he speaks through poetry. Often he speaks through the giving of laws. Many times he spoke through visions and dreams. Sometimes he spoke through parables. Often he spoke through circumstances that were under his sovereign control. Sometimes he spoke with an audible voice. One time he even spoke through a donkey. I think I could say this. We're not. Are we recording? I don't think so. Years ago, we were at a crossroads in our lives, and and uh, I went I went to my father-in-law and asked him for some advice. And you have to understand, my father-in-law was a pastor for 20 years, and then the last four decades of his life, he was, he lived as just a total reprobate. I mean, it was just, it was the saddest thing ever. But he really gave me good advice that day. And somebody that, that knew our story and all says, uh, so how, how did you take advice from your father-in-law? I said, well, God spoke through a donkey once before. So, <laughs> and, uh, and I was trying to be respectful, but you know, you just, God, God can speak in, in many ways. He spoke through specific instructions. He spoke through elaborate ceremonies. He spoke through kings. He spoke through judges. He spoke through the prophets. God spoke. The Old Testament is not simply a collection of stories, but it is the record of the very words of God. And God's words are powerful words. God said, and it was so. To our fathers, to the saints down through biblical history. Just a, a few 
Adam and Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon and Isaiah and Daniel, etc., etc. And he spoke by way of the prophets. A prophet is one who speaks for God to men. He, he takes what God has placed upon his mind and heart and he tells people that. A priest is one who speaks to God for men. As we go through Hebrews, we will find that our Lord Jesus is both prophet and priest. He spoke from God to man and he spoke to God for man. In the writing of the Old Testament, men used their minds and their personalities, but they used them under the control of the Holy Spirit. So that everything that is said, as I said already, is true. The only thing is, it's not yet complete. There was more that God wanted to reveal, and He did that in His Son. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They said, we, we can't get clarity on who this is or what it is, but we know that it's going to happen and in these last days is defined as that period of history between his two appearings. His first appearing in the book of the, of the Gospels in the birth of Jesus, and his promised second appearing just as he appeared the first time. So we have this boldness that he will appear. It is this present dispensation of grace. It is this church age that we live on. This, we live on the guarantee that his promises will ultimately be fulfilled. And today is spoken to us by his son. The cliffhanger has been resolved. God's perfect revelation has been sent. All of the New Testament has focused upon him. All of the Old Testament pointed toward him. He is the full revelation of God in flesh. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Next week, we'll begin to unpack these seven affirmations of Christ's Sonship. They include that He is the Heir, He is the Creator, He is the Radiance, He is the Imprint, He is the Keeper, He is the Purifier, He is the Exalted. Michael Kruger, seminary prof, wrote this. How would our lives look different if we thought about Jesus not just as our Savior from sin, but also as the sovereign King of everything? How would focusing on Jesus as the ruler of all and the master of the universe change our lives? We would be more prayerful. We would be less anxious because we would entrust all our cares to Christ. And we would be less despairing about the advance of the gospel. Because we would remember that the great God who upholds the whole universe is the one leading His army forward. Jesus is not going to lose. The world is His inheritance. He will prevail in the end. However, dark things get. 
Jesus is king. Jesus is our king. So we ask the question, is he enough? We'll jump to the last page of Hebrews for the benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.